Hello and welcome to History West Midlands, our regular in-depth examination of various aspects of the black country. Today we're on location at the very fringes of the southwest black country as guests of the Ruskin Centre and Glasshouse College in Amblecote. Situated at the heart of the established glass industry, the centre is playing host to the International Festival of Glass and Biennale Glass Exhibition. Held every alternate year, the festival celebrates glass in all its forms, and there's no better location to hold it than here, in the very epicentre of the established glass industry. This also offers us an eminently suitable backdrop for us to explore the area's rise and decline, and to celebrate its renaissance as it adapts to life in the 21st century. With a history spanning back over 400 years, Starbridge Glass is recognised worldwide as being synonymous with everything from superior quality decorative wear to high-tech scientific applications, although it's particularly noted for its lead-cut crystal. There were many manufacturers in the area with uh, household names such as Thomas Webb, Webb Corbett and Stuart Crystal producing it in enormous quantities. Sadly, the big players are now all gone. But Starbridge has countless other claims to glassmaking fame as well, not least its associations with the iconic Cameo Portland vase, with the latest 2012 variant being made on this very site. Let's uh, set the scene as to why Starbridge features so prominently in the world of glassmaking. And with me is a glass expert, author, lecturer, and one of the founding fathers of Broadfield House Glass Museum in nearby King's Finford, Charles Haydemack. Uh, Charles, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, what was the size of Starbridge glassmaking at his zenith, and when exactly was that? The zenith would have been somewhere between the 1770s and the 1920s, when we estimate there'd probably be about 30 glass factories in the area of Starbridge. Uh, we should say that it's known as Starbridge Glass, but in fact there were glass factories in Dudley, in Wordsley, in Briley Hill. In fact, there wasn't any glass made pretty much in the centre of Starbridge. But yes, about 30 glass factories in those dates between 1770 and 1920. But one has to remember the glass industry started here back in the 1570s, 1600, and today still very much a centre, not with the large glass factories, which, as you rightly said, have all disappeared, but now with studio glass. So a continuing industry, and on a par with other sort of international centres like Bohemia, Venice. It always has been and still is one of the great, great glass-making centres. Now, we'd use the term Starbridge glass, but uh, most of it, of course, was made not too far away in Worsley and Amblecote. And I understand there wasn't actually a glass facility exactly in the centre of Starbridge. The nearest one in the centre of Starbridge was at Mary Stevens Park, where the council house is now, but not actually in the town centre. So why Starbridge Glass? Where does the term We, we think that certainly in the 19th century, by which time you had all the major banks opening in the town, the glass factories like Richardson's and Wordsley and Thomas Webb's and Amblecote would be using those banks, and on the invoices you'd have Starbridge Glass. So I think that's where it came from. What was the scope of uh, manufacturing in the area? What was the sort of thing that was made, and did it specialise particularly? The scope was very wide. The major things were cut glass, but also coloured tableware, vases, decorative items, novelty items, which were quite often carried in the glassmakers' processions. But you also had, certainly in the 18th century, glass works making bottles, window glass was something produced in the 17th century. The one thing which didn't really happen in a great way was stained glass, uh, glass making for stained glass windows, which was more the province of companies in Birmingham. Why Stanbridge? Why did glass making settle here? The reason we think it settled here was the fire clay deposits which were being mined at the same time as the coal was being mined. You need fire clay to make the clay pots to hold the melting glass because melting glass will eat through virtually anything and the fire clay is this very high quality refractive material is the best thing. So we think that was the reason. 
first glass makers settled here around about the 1570s, 1580s, probably from the Lorraine part of France. The very famous one was Paul Tysac, who baptised his firstborn son in 1612 in St Mary's in King's Winford. And from then it just developed. At that time they were using wood as a fuel by the early 17th century. That was prohibited by the government, so they moved to coal. And again, obviously, you've got huge coal deposits in this area. So gradually, the industry developed, and then families settled. So there was no reason to move, because you had all the facilities here. And Paul Tysak, would he be the first recorded glassmaker here? He is the first recorded one. Uh, we also know roughly where his glasshouse was. It was near the viaduct down at what was called Coleman's, just as you go from Starridge out towards Lye, that viaduct on the River Stour. How was the industry organised, Charles, and what was the structure, if there was one, and how did this compare with other glassmaking areas? Was there anything that made us particularly unique? It was the quality of the glass they were making here, certainly in the 19th century. It certainly was the largest conglomeration of glass factories and glassmakers, glass cutters, glass engravers in Britain, comparable to sort of London, uh, St Helens, the North East, Bristol. But this area was, uh, had the diversity of making everything from cameo glass, you touched on the Portland bars, from cameo glass right down to salt cellars for local hotels or something like that, and everything in between. We have touched in various other programmes on the effects of the industry on the surrounding landscape, particularly with the extraction of minerals for fuel, etc. What were the conditions germane in the glass industry? What level of skills were brought in, and uh, how did this impact on the local landscape? Well, first of all, the building of the glass cones, the last surviving one in this area, the Red House Cone, just up the road here from the Ruskin Centre, those were built in the 18th century. They had a dramatic impact on the landscape because they were as noticeable as the church spire or something like Dudley Castle. There are engravings of Dudley in the 1770s where the glass cones are as big, as important as Dudley Castle itself. There must have been a golden age for glassmaking in the area of Zenith. When was that? What caused it to decline? The Golden Age was the 19th century, mainly Queen Victoria's reign. In this area, certainly by 1800, you had the technological revolution of glass cutters using the newly developed steam power to drive their cutting lathes, which meant you then had a fabulous sort of deeply cut sort of type of glass, Regency cut glass, which was popular all across Europe, all across the world. You then get developments in colour technology, we have the Great Exhibition in 1851 where all the local factories exhibited their ware and can compare what they were making with glass companies from Germany, from the Czech Republic, from America. The real golden age, I suppose, was the 1860s, 70s, right the way through to the start of the First World War when the major development was cameo glass, when John Northwood recreated the very exact copy of the Portland vase that you mentioned earlier, the Roman cameo vase, and... Every factory was producing extraordinary coloured glass, developing new techniques, inventing new machinery to do various decorative processes. Just quite, quite extraordinary sort of outpouring of, of skill, imagination, originality, inventiveness. Looking around us, what's been lost now, Charles, it's difficult to imagine all this going on in this very area not so long ago. Where did it all go wrong? There were many, many reasons, I think, for the large factories disappearing, for example. I think they'd lost touch with what people wanted to buy. I think they felt they probably had some sort of God-given right to make cut glass and the public had to come in and buy it. They didn't realise that people wanted minimal decoration. You know, cut glass was not the fashion. And I think there was obviously competition from overseas, as there always has been. But certainly in the 19th century, the glass companies could actually compete and make anything even better than was coming in from abroad.
Is there any suggestion we may have sat on our laurels for a while? I think you're absolutely right, Graham. There was that complacency among the large companies. You know, we're going to carry on making this because we have done. And I think when you look at some of the cut glass from the 1970s, 1980s, we didn't collect that at Broadfield House Glass Museum because it didn't speak of the period. It was just a mass thing that could have come from any period. It had lost any kind of sense of the time. Whereas when you get cut glass from the 1920s, 30s, the Art Deco period, it has that geometry, that sophistication, that stylishness that you expect to have from Art Deco products. And you certainly didn't get that in the 70s, 80s and 90s, not in any large respect anyway. The loss of industries from this area, the country, the whole, uh, the list is a long one over the decades. What was the particular social impact of the loss of the glass industries at Starbridge, do you feel? Well, sort of large-scale unemployment or a large amount of unemployment because there was nowhere else for those glassmakers to go. Other areas of the country also suffering. The large companies were disappearing from other parts of Great Britain. So people then had to find jobs as postmen or whatever. I lived just a few yards away from where we're sitting and my next-door neighbours were glassmakers and just had to find whatever employment they could. So huge, huge impact. The large-scale manufacturing side is now sadly gone. But there is a widespread impression that the whole industry is gone, and that's simply not the case. I know you're as keen as me to promote the notion that Starbridge Glass is still very much alive. What remains of it, do you feel, and where is it developing from here? What's its future? Well, the remains are you've got the sort of historic buildings like the Red House Cone, the old Webb Corbett factory that we're sitting in here at the Ruskin Glass Centre, various historic sites, the various archaeological digs that have been happening here at the old Webb Corbett factory. You've all got the glass collections at Broadfield House Glass Museum. But the people themselves are still here. The people like the great innovators of the 19th century. And just to name a few, you have people like Keith Brocklehurst, who's in charge of the glass festival here, one of the great international glass makers. Dave Pruthock, who was here last night at the opening. A fabulous engraver, lives just around the corner. Keith Cummings, who's still is in charge of PhD students and is a brilliant glassmaker in his own right, has published three or four books on the techniques of glass making, which are Bibles, you know, for people coming into Studio Glass. So you still have all those great names here, so it is still very exciting. It's just a different form. People got used to the large glass factories as being the symbol of the industry. Now it's the Studio Glass makers. You've got people working here at, at Ruskin. You've got Alistair Malcolm working at the Glass Museum at Broadfield House. And they are fabulous glassmakers and respected internationally. We do have a Tudor Crystal plan and Thompson's up the road as yes, well, but yes, uh, well. sadly they're the last ones in the area. Which yep, yep. Long may they continue. Do you see a bright future for the industry, albeit a change form? I do, actually. I think people like the Dave Prothicks, the Keith Cummings, the Brocklehurst of this world come to the area because it's still a melting pot. I think the collections at Broadfield actually attract sort of glassmakers because they use those as inspiration, look at the things that their predecessors made and get inspired that way. So I think it's a great future. An optimistic note to finish on, Charles, and one that uh, I'm glad to share with you, that there is still a future for Starbridge Glass. Thank you very much indeed, Charles. Thank you, Thank you. And as always, if you wish to obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our audio resources or simply contact us. Then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website, all the W's, historywm.com, and following the relevant links. Join me next time for more fascinating insights into the black country. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening.